0: Oh God, we are so humbled by that fact. We come before you this morning and we got to admit there's times where we doubt you. There's times we wonder what you're doing. There's moments we don't know if you're so good to us, but the fact is you are. You are always good. You are always right. You are always seeking our very best. Help us when we don't understand to trust you, to rely upon you, to live by your word, by your leading, by your guiding. Help us to be yielded to you like we've never been yielded before. Help us to walk close to you and to understand and to reflect and to be drawn closer to you. Thank you for being good to us. Thank you for giving us forgiveness. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us your spirit. Thank you for giving us family. Thank you for giving us church. Thank you for giving us health. Thank you for giving us minds. Some of us don't use them the way we ought, but thank you for them anyway. Thank you for the little things that we take for granted. We take for granted our running water, our heat. We take for granted that we can drive anywhere and we have such abundance. We take for granted our kids can go to school, that we can read, that we have writing around us. We take for granted our electricity. We take for granted sometimes you. Help us not to do that this week. Help us to reflect on your goodness and to stay really huddled close to you. We pray in your name. Amen. We are a society that's geared up on all kinds of uh, figures and stats. Let's see if we can do one here this morning. Logic Tech did a study to see where are most TV remotes that are lost. Where are they found? What'd you say? In the furniture? Fifty percent are in the sofa. Four percent are in the fridge or freezer. How does that happen? Okay. How do you get that? And two percent end up in your car? Okay, here's a stat for you. What is the most dangerous occupation that is injury or death per capita of the people involved in that in that business that die or injured? What's the most dangerous occupation? It's not police officers, it's taxicab, <laughs> Uber drivers, no, um, it's not anybody in the medical world. <laughs> it's professional fishermen, okay, yeah, professional. And what did you say you're doing this afternoon after church, you're going fishing? Yeah, yeah, okay, births of babies in the United States, some stats, here we go. What time of the day are more babies born, night or daytime hours? <laughs> I knew the ladies would definitely say it was night. Greater number is daytime, 8 a.m. to noon, okay? What day of the week is the most popular day that babies are born in America? Oh, man, you guys are good. Tuesday is number one, and number two is, is Monday, okay? Rough weekends. How long does it take people to eat in America? Here's, here, let me, let me do this. Are Americans the fastest eaters in the world? No. We are number three. Now, I'm talking in the course of one day. In the course of one day. How much time does the average American spend in the course of a day eating? Ten minutes is not right. We're not that fast. Okay. Average in time in America per day is an hour and 14 minutes. Okay. some of you, you got that beat. I'm not saying which way, but you got a beat, okay? Here we go. What countries in the world are the slowest, take the most time to eat? What did you say, Pastor Kim? They are not number one, okay? Number one is Turkey. Number two, it's the French. Okay, here's a stat for you that's not a pleasant one, okay? Persecution in the world today Is it going on? Oh, my. Here's your stats. Since the death of Christ 2,000 years ago, 43 million Christians have become martyrs, estimated, estimated. Over 50% of these were in the last century alone. More than 200 million Christians face persecution every day here in the world, 60% of whom are children. Every day, over 300 people are killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. Are we blessed, living in our freedoms? In fact, during our missions conference, if the coronavirus doesn't intercept some of our missionaries, we have some who are dealing with these very things in their ministries. Three of our different guests that are coming have or are in areas where there's such persecution. And not everybody will jump on the wagon and say, I am ready to go. In fact, even in Jesus' ministry, there was hesitancy to, to submit to persecution. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. What we're doing this morning is we're continuing in a series on God forbids, and the passage I'm using, using in Matthew 16 is a God forbid not spoken by Jesus or from the mouth of God or under the inspiration of Scripture, but is spoken by one of the apostles who is resisting the idea of suffering and persecution. Let me set the scene. In this text, in Matthew 16, if you just get the whole flavor of where we're going, it'll make much more sense. We're beginning, or in that part of the second half of Jesus' three-and-a-half-year ministry. During that period of time, Jesus took the disciples up into the northern far regions of where the Jews lived, and even went farther north into an area that was um, dominated by the Gentiles. The area that he's going to go to, is, where we pick up, is in Caesarea Philippi, is the town, And up in that northern region that you can see in the map in the far top right, it says Syria. This is part of that region that is mostly Gentiles. Mostly mostly Greeks, sometimes you'll read in the New Testament. Lots of idolatry, not many Jews up there. And so Jesus wasn't going to the synagogues. He wasn't doing a lot of public preaching. But it was during this time that he pulls the disciples away and says, I need to talk to you. I need to have moments with you to train, to talk, to prepare you, because after this... He is going to start his several weeks, a month to weeks down that he's traveling to Jerusalem where he's going to die. And so this is his final getaway retreat with his disciples before he heads to Jerusalem where he's going to determine that he is going to have to be crucified. And so up in this region where he's speaking to the disciples, there's a lot of paganism. One of the major temples in the Caesarea Philippi was one that was to the god Pan, which was a lot of debauchery and drunkenness, things of that sort. So Jesus is taking the disciples up there, he's talking to them, and he gets into a time where he's going to talk with them and train them. One of the best ways to train is ask questions to figure out where somebody is at. And so he asked the disciples a question that you read in Matthew chapter 16. If you jump down in the text, and I'm going to Be bouncing around in the text, but you can follow and you'll be from verse 13 down towards the end of the chapter. You follow as we just go through this morning. Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi and he asked the disciples, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so, what I want you to catch is Jesus, Matthew records this several times, calls himself the Son of Man. They know who he's talking about. He said it several times before, he's given himself that title. And they respond and they say, Okay, this is what we hear the crowd saying. The Jews, when we were in northern Galilee, when we were in those regions, some said that you were John the Baptist. Remember, Herod even thinks this, that, you know, that, that Jesus is the, re, the reincarnated John the Baptist because he had him beheaded. And you remember that whole story that comes up in Matthew 14. But in this, this comment, some say, oh, it's John the Baptist. Come back in a different form, different flavor. Some said, oh, you're Elijah because Elijah was predicted to come. And they help introduce the kingdom. Some are thinking you're the reincarnated, the, re, the revived Elijah. Some are thinking you're Jeremiah. The, the question is, why did some say Jeremiah? Don't really know. But in Jewish writings, this might be the answer. Jewish writings, many times they started with not you know, uh, Isaiah you know, and, and going through in that order. They would start with Jeremiah. When there's different writers. So it could be that. Or it could be Jeremiah is called the what prophet. The weeping prophet. And so he had, a, he had a message of doom. He had a message of damnation. Well, Jesus just preached a message. The last time he was in Israel that he preached, you go to Matthew 11, and he talks about doom and damnation upon uh, you know, Bethsaida and Chorazin, and it'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah and Judgment Day than these Jewish towns. And so maybe that's what he's doing. They, that's what they thought. And then they conclude, they say, but you're one of the prophets. Whatever the varied answers were that they give, what, they, what is obvious is the crowds are putting Jesus as one of the spiritual giants, as one of the, the people that they looked up to. And so Jesus then changes the question, and it's very emphatic in the original language. Whom do you, all of you guys, all 12 of you, whom do you say that I am? And we read in the text that one of them speaks up. Guess who speaks up before anybody? Okay, Peter speaks up. Okay. And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And so he, as the self appointed spokesman on many occasions, and he doesn't think doesn't say, I think you are, very emphatic again in the original. Who do you think? You are, you are the Son of God. And so he uses the term. Very clearly, you all know this, Christ is the same as Messiah, two different languages, whether it be the Hebrew or the the Greek. And it means simply the anointed one. Old Testament talked about the anointed one, that he would be God's representative on earth. He as the Messiah would be the one who's anointed to be the future king upon the earth. He is the redeemer, that's Messiah. He is going to be the eternal high priest, combination king and priest, was Messiah, the very unique. And so Jewish thinking is that the Messiah is the greatest of all human beings. And Peter said, that's you. And not only that, you're the son of the living God. And so he brings into these comments right away what he thinks. This is not the first time that they made these comments. So why is Jesus asking them, Whom do you think I am? They already said, you're the son of the living God. They already said, you are the Christ. In fact, when they were recruited, that Andrew went up and said, hey, I think we found the Christ, the predicted one. And so for the last two years, they've had this. So why does he ask that? Why does Jesus ask them? It's probably just to make sure, guys, are you still thinking this? Do you really believe this? And Peter makes it clear. I really, 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 really do believe this. And Jesus' response is what's really interesting. Jesus, notice the next verse. Jesus says to Peter, the comments, he says, Blessings upon you, Peter. What you said is absolutely right. It is the only time, by the way, he calls him by his full name, Simon Bar-Jonah. He says that you didn't know this on your own. This is something, the spiritual insight that God gave you, which makes perfect sense. We read in Corinthians, no man can say Jesus is Lord, but the Holy Spirit making that clear. You don't call upon Christ based upon your own wisdom. It's the Spirit of God working inside of you, wooing you, bringing you to that place where you fully understand. And so that word of God is working in Peter's life. God has already said multiple times, "This is my beloved." son. He's going to say it in the very next chapter once again on the mount. Listen to him, my beloved son. And so the father has confirmed that. Peter understands that. And Peter responds and they got it right. Peter got the answer right. Now that's very important to remember. Peter got the answer right at this first question and he's convinced. He's absolutely. And Jesus is saying, great, that is wonderful. And then I'm going to pause for you and my sake. Let's ask this question of you and me. Who do you say Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? If he were here standing this morning and he were to say, you know, who do men say that I am? And we would have all the answers in our publicities. We would be able to say, oh, people in the world say you're a great teacher. You're a good example. People, Some people say that you're the, you're the head of the church, but they have their own head. You know, that's kind of the vicar in your place. Jesus, you're this, this. And then it comes down to Jesus standing in our auditorium and saying to you, whom do you say that I am? How would you answer that? According to this text, this is what he clearly presents himself as. He already has said, yes, you're right, if you call me God's son and Messiah. That's correct. That's who Jesus is. He is God's only begotten son. He is the anointed one, the future king, the high priest, the redeemer of the world, he is that person. But in his next comments, he reveals something else to us. He reveals that he is also head of what we call church. He is head of us. Look at what happens here after Peter got it right. Jesus says in verse 18, he says that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, this is a very common, popular verse, and some churches have totally different explanations from this verse. Where I grew up, the idea was taught in the, in the Catholic background that I have that Peter, in this verse, became the very first pope. And that Jesus said he was building his church on Peter. And then whoever succeeded Peter, they are the head of the church based on this verse. You and I would look and say, well, well wait a minute, let's look at the wording. You, emphatic Peter, you are Petros, and upon this Petra, he uses two different words, Okay, that many of you have studied this already, that there's the idea of a small stone versus a big stone. You are Peter upon this rock, and the big question is, what's the big stone that the fo- that's going to form the foundation? Is it, okay, is it the big stone, is it Peter? And I'm going to respond, you're going to respond, I hope, saying, no. Is it his confession that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God and the Messiah? Could be that. That's, that's a bigger picture than one man. Could it be the teachings of Jesus? Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount, how he ends up on the Sermon on the Mount? The wise man builds his house upon the rock and he makes the comments that the rock is my teachings, my words, what I have just said. Is that what he's talking about, or is it the person of Jesus Christ? That he says, you are Peter, but upon me, I'm going to build my church. Now me, this is, this is where I'm coming down. I'm coming down that it's Jesus Christ. The reason I base that is, for other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid Jesus Christ. F- Acts 4, be it known unto you all. Now this is Peter preaching to the Jews. This is Peter speaking you know, months later. And to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him does this man stand here, excuse my spelling, before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by the builders, which has become the head of the corner, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name given under heaven. So is Jesus the rock, the stone, upon which all of our salvation resides? Yes. Okay. So I think what he's saying is, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to gather all the born-again people into this uh, this assembly. But I go back to the idea of church and understand that he makes it emphatic, I will build my church. And that makes perfect sense the way you'd say it because the word he uses, there was a lot of those ecclesias out there at the time. They could have an ecclesia, a gathering of, and we read it in the book of Acts, of the guild workers. There could be an ecclesia of those who want to form a... Um, a club, and they wanted to have a club that could be for a weight loss program, a gathering of people, it means a gathering of people who get together for a common purpose. That's that idea of ecclesia. And it was used, you could have an ecclesia, a group of widows getting together. You could have an ecclesia of golfers getting together. You could have an ecclesia of fishermen getting together, called out to work and do their business of fishing. And so Jesus makes it clear. He says, I have my own. I have a very special ecclesia. I have a a very special group. And he says, it's my group. It's my church. And so I own it. It belongs to me. And it's a very powerful one. Peter, the one that I'm going to gather, and this is the first comment that he makes of church in the New Testament. First time he refers to it. He says, it's going to be when I gather that group together, that's my group. And when I get them together, they're going to be very powerful. The gates of hell shall... Okay, the wording literally says the gates of hell will never overpower it. It's the literal sense. They cannot... And the question is, what did that mean? The gates of hell will never overpower it. Is it the idea, and there's lots of debates and conversations that go on that say, okay, did he mean, you know, whatever comes out of hell, out of the gates of hell, such as demonic attacks and things of that sort? Did he mean that, you know, out out of the place of the dead? That's literally the word here, by the way, Hades. It's the place where the dead are. So is it the forces of hell? Demonic forces won't overcome. Well, we know that's a truism. That Jesus Christ has rendered Satan powerless. We read that later in the New Testament words. That he has defeated him. But could it also mean this idea that where the people, their souls go, the place of the dead at that time, just a general concept, that the believers, they weren't going to be staying there forever. My church is going to come out from the grave they're going to come out from the realm of the dead and they're going to be resurrected one day and they're going to have life with me forever and ever. Is that a biblical concept that we are not going, that death has not conquered us because of Jesus Christ? Yeah, that's true. So whatever his, his exact meaning could be, either one of those could be both of them. The concepts are biblical. That the church is extremely powerful, and for all the power of the church, Jesus is even more powerful because he 's in charge. He gives the power to the church, so we know from what he said so far that Jesus is in this text Jesus is the son of uh, son of god he 's messiah he 's the head of us, our our local our one church. he is in charge he, this belongs to him this is not my church, because I happen to be in a position of pastor. This is Christ's church. This is not some rich person here, if we have one. This is not some rich person's church. This belongs to Jesus. So when we come to worship, we have to recognize we're worshiping our owner, our master. He's in charge. He tells us what to do. We follow his words to the best of our ability. Do we struggle at times? Absolutely. Are we totally perfect in how we do things? Absolutely not. But this belongs to him. And we all say, it's your church. It's yours. But he goes on. Excuse me, he goes on. Okay, And he tells us something else about himself. Look at what happens as he reveals a little bit more. As he talks a little bit more, he says to the disciples, verse 21, as they're leaving, from that time forth began Jesus to show his disciples how that he, what's your next word? He must, okay, we're going to come back to that. He must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed and be raised again the third day. This is weeks before it takes place, and he knows exactly what's going to happen. Yeah, you have an idea that in a few weeks, your kid's going to graduate from college, and you're going to go down, and you're going to celebrate, but in the back of your mind, you're saying, we hope. It's what I paid for, okay? You don't know for an absolute 100% certainty. You are planning that says, okay, by, you know, this summer, I am retiring, And when I'm retired, I'm going to visit every wonderful dream and everything on my bucket list. You have that plan. You don't know if you'll be able to do it. You and I have plans. Well, not me, but you have plans to go to work tomorrow. Okay? Right? God bless you. Okay? You have plans. I only work one day of the week, so this is it. Okay? (laughs) So you have plans tomorrow to go to school, to go to work. But do you know definitely if that's going to happen? You might get the flu. Oh, God forbid. We might get a snowstorm. Oh, God forbid, right? We don't know. But Jesus knows. Now, this is important when we think, who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. He's the head of the church. He knows everything about what's going to happen, and he knows the details. He knows what's happening to him, what's happening to us. He also goes on and describes himself in a a way when he says, okay, this is going to happen as well. I want you to jump down a little bit further in the text. Verse 27. He says, For the Son of Man, that's him, shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. So what do we find about Jesus in that text? He shares the Father's glory. This is who Jesus is. He shares the Father's glory. A little bit of that is revealed to them in the very next chapter. Because he says, some of you will see Jesus in his glory. You won't die until you see me in my glory. The next chapter is the story of them being at the Mount of Transfiguration. And Jesus is glorified to the point that they write, they say, it was brighter than the sun of the high noon time. That his greatness, his glory, his manifestation of his righteousness radiated from his person. Where do you get that? From God the Father. He and the Father are one. So Jesus is in glory. But I back it up to say he also comes with his angels. What does that tell you? His position is he's over all the angels. He's over this Jesus that we're talking about this morning. This Jesus that we've come to worship this morning. He's the son of God. He's the head of this group. He knows all the future. He is going to come in glory. He's in charge of the angels He is simply amazing. He is awesome. But he doesn't stop there. Okay? We ask the question, who is Jesus to us? He is the one who will be our judge. Look at what happens. He concludes in verse 27. And then he shall reward every man according to his works. We're going to answer to Jesus Christ. He's the one that one day you and I are going to stand before and we have to give an account. I will have to give an account how I did with the word of God. I'll have to give an account how I, how I conducted myself in service for Christ and so will you. And there could be rewards for when you give out the gospel. Rewards for how you kept a pure life. Rewards about how you endured your trials and troubles that you have. But he's going to be our judge. And then we read in chapter 17, when he appears in glory, there's two other guys with him. And it says who they are in verse 3. Behold, there appeared unto him Moses and Elijah. talking. Moses and Elijah were the heroes. They were the greats. We say, okay, who are our great presidents? And there's debate on who they are. But by comparison in American history, we'd say, oh, that's the Washington, the Lincolns, the standouts. Moses and Elijah were the standouts of the Old Testament, especially those to the one delivered the law, the one represents the prophets, and Jesus is above them. That's the Jesus that we're here this morning. That's the Christ that we think about. Who is he? He is the greatest. He is above the angels. He is the king of all the earth. He is the one and only son. He is our judge. So that leads us to the most important question. The big question is how will you respond to Jesus? He doesn't ask that question directly, but it's illustrated in the text. It's illustrated by how they respond when they say he says, "Who do you th- say that I am?" Well, we think that you're this 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 this, you're you're the great one, okay? Then when I tell you something, how will you respond? I can show you how you shouldn't respond. And then from the text, I can show you what Jesus says. Here's the way you should respond to me. The what you shouldn't do. The what you shouldn't do is you don't want to do what, in this story, Peter does. In this text, when Peter heard Jesus speak, after Peter was commended for his conversation, Peter hears Jesus say, I must go to Jerusalem. Verse 21. I must die. Verse 22. Then Peter took him aside, politely apparently, and began to rebuke him. And it's very strong words by the way, very strong for rebuke. He began to rebuke him saying, God forbid, God forbid Lord, this shall not be unto you. A double negative, a double God forbid and this cannot happen. Just very adamant, very strong. And in the middle of the two phrases, God forbid, this shall never happen, he calls Jesus Lord. Isn't that ironic? Here he is. You are the ruler. You're the head. You're the one who, who leads the church. Da, 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 but I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to do what you tell me. I'm not going to go along with what you say. And so what's, what's really, really, really interesting is if the, if we were living in Bible days, and uh, you were a disciple to another person. They had laws that said if you publicly rebuked your teacher, you questioned them in public, you challenged your teacher uh, something of what he said. Not not learning, but you rebuked your leader. There were in the Jewish culture there were penalties for public disrespect or disobedience to your master. The penalties could go as far as a death sentence. So what, Jesus, what Peter does to Jesus, whoa it was a crime. It was, it was totally, and it's recorded this way, it was totally beyond expectation. That Peter would do such a thing. And then, not only because it wasn't, it was culturally so wrong, so wrong for him to do that. But think about Peter at this moment. Peter, when you, de- he's the spokesman of the 12. Peter is the one who just made the great confession. Peter is the one who has just been given authority as a church leader. I didn't t- t- show you it yet, but jump in the previous verse, paragraph. It says in verse 19, um, you, know, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, the gates of hell, you know, won't prevail, and I will give unto you, okay, now we're back to that concept of he's talking one-on-one with Peter, Peter and the disciples, I will give unto you, here it's singular, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And there's lots of discussion. What are the keys of the kingdom? Keys give you authority They help you to unlock things. Is it the concept that Peter was going to unlock the message of the gospel and preach it when Jesus left? Well, he was the first preacher. That's a that's a possibility of it. But it's clearly it's a symbol of authority that Peter has given some of this authority and uh, just remind you that if you were living back in those days and you went to school and followed your master, one of the things that they would give you when you graduated from Pharisee school is they didn't give you a diploma that you can hang on the wall. they give you a key. And that was the Jewish idea of the key would be a representation that you graduate and you are a legitimate teacher. This is your shingle, that you would hang out front to say, I am a legitimate teacher. Is that what he's referring to? Peter, you're going to be a legitimate teacher of the word? Well, that's true. He does become that. What we we have from this is, you know, he's making the comment, what you bind shall have been bound. And by the way, that's very important. You understand the verbiage. What you bind will be bound is not the way it reads in the original. What you bind shall have been bound. What you loosed shall have been loosed. It's not man making the determination. It's God already having made the determination, but men are just carrying it out. So the concept is really important. And I want you to understand, this wasn't given to Peter alone. Okay? in the, You read in chapter 18, they are all given authority to bind and to loose. that's okay? not Peter. Peter isn't singled out in this text. Okay? But it's that idea of binding and loosing was a very common phrase. The idea of permitting, and here's the idea that I think you need to walk away with. Whatever we, it it is not this. Whatever we say, God will approve. Whatever I bind, God's going to bind now. Whatever I loose, God's going to loose. That's not what it means. It's not what it means. It means this. It means this concept. We will say whatever God has already bound or loosed. We will declare what God has already given. And Peter, you're given the authority. I'm giving you the keys to speak on my behalf. But that's great authority. And that's what Peter was given. And so Peter has the authority to speak God's truth. And so when all of a sudden he's given this authority, he rebukes Jesus. It's amazing. It's amazing. Here, here, here's some concepts for your friends that you may talk who have different religious beliefs. Peter is not infallible. The text clearly teaches us Peter is not infallible. He gets it right at one moment, he gets it wrong in the next. So those who would say, oh, this is the passage that says Peter is never going to make a mistake. Read the entire text. Okay? Uh, this is not a text that says Peter was exalted above the other twelve. As I already said in the next couple chapters he gives that same authority of binding and loosing speaking to the others and in fact just a couple chapters later they're going to say by the way which one of us is the greatest. They don't even they didn't understand that Peter was elevated as pope above them. So that's all wrong. But what this does passage does tell us is that Peter made a huge mistake talking to Jesus Christ and my question is why did he do it? Did he do it because He had just been given authority. And now that he was given authority, now with Jesus, now that I can speak on your behalf, then maybe I can pull you aside and tell you what I think. Because now I'm an authority. I'm getting pretty equal with you. You know, I may be your assistant, but I'm this assistant. Does that ever happen that people get power and position and then they tell God what to do? So you look at it and say, Did Peter do this out of love? Instead, let's take away he didn't have a big head. Was he motivated to say, Jesus, you are not going to die because I love you so much, I will not let that happen to you? Is that a possibility? Sure. And by the way, when he's in the garden and he could do something about it, what does he do? Yeah, he pulls out his dagger, he misses the guy, cuts off his ear with a... Switchblade, about this long, he's going to take on 600 soldiers. Okay. Peter was zealous. There's no doubt about it. Whether he did things right, you cannot say he did not love Jesus. He did, right? He put his life on the line. He was an idiot. Yeah, the way he carried it out, but he was a zealous idiot. Okay. Did he do this out of fear? Did they already know... That the Pharisees were going to try to get rid of Jesus—that's become common knowledge. Read the, read the whole the Synoptics. Could there be desperation? Remember later on when they say uh, Jesus says Lazarus is dead, and they say, "If we go to Jeru- near Jerusalem, we will all die." So, do the disciples ever think about their own self-preservation? Okay. Could he do this because he had confusion about the Messiah? The Messiah can't die. So did he do this because life was good and we are not upsetting the apple cart? This is, I'm I'm having one. In fact, when they go up on the mountain just a few verses later and he sees the wonder, he says, Jesus, I want to build three tabernacles for us to stay up here forever. I'm on a mountaintop and I don't want anything to take me down. So Jesus, what you're suggesting is going to upset my life, our life. I don't know why. Could it be that he didn't want to go through pain? He didn't want anybody else to go through pain? Was he that much of a kind-hearted person like you that said, I wish I could take away somebody's pain? I don't know. I don't know what his motives were. I don't know what you know, exactly what the reason, but this much I do know that God forbid we act like him, that we do one of these, that we say because we've been given some authority, we are now going to tell God what to do or what he can't do. We are now given the authority over our home. And so since I'm the head of the house, that gives me the right and the rule and the privilege of sitting on the sofa Put up in my feet up, holding the power of authority of the remote. And Deb, you wait on me all the time that I have a whim or a wish. And in our house, when we go behind those doors, it's all about me because I'm the head. Yeah. <laughs> that would be deadly. Okay? dumb, and purely unbiblical to let that authority go to my head. Could it be that somebody gets leadership at work and once they got that position, they say, now I can ease off in my work. I don't have to be as diligent. I can take advantage of my position and take things that would be wrong. Could it be you say to God, Okay, I'm the leader of the peers, I'm in charge, and God, you tell us that we're to prove all things that are acceptable, what we do as a group of teens, but I'm the leader and I'm going to make sure that we all have fun no matter if it goes against your word or not. I look at this and I say, what this text warns me about is letting my emotions dictate what I do. If I have fear, if I have love, does that give me the right to countermand what Jesus says? For instance, you love somebody so much that even God says, do not be unequally yoked, but I love them. You, you say, wait a minute, I love my child, my nephew, my siblings so much that when God burdens their heart to go to the mission field, I love them too much they can't go. I love somebody so much that if I live for Christ the way I know I'm supposed to live, they might get upset with me. My mom, my dad, my relatives might be disappointed in me, and I have to choose my love for them or what does God command me to do. We ought not uh, let our love or our emotions control us to the point that we make decisions to violate God's commands. When we look at the text, we we talk about this idea, okay, of of the lack of understanding of God's wills, his way. You know, he didn't know, okay, you don't understand why God tells you to listen to your parents. You don't dare say to God, God forbid that I have to listen. You don't understand how it works financially that if you give on a regular basis, systematically to the ministries, that God is going to take care. So you don't say, well, God, I don't understand, so I'm not going to follow your word. You don't, you don't understand how this child discipline will work. You, you don't understand that because if you do it God's way, it seems like all you're doing is correcting the child. And I, I don't understand it, but you don't dare say to God, therefore, because I don't understand the final results, I'm not going to do it. We, ought not, we, we can't go there. We can't go there. We can't say, God, I like the way my life is. I don't want any suffering. I don't want any difficulties. So therefore, God... God forbid that you would give me a trial. God forbid that you would allow any suffering in my... God forbid that I would say it's okay to take my health. God forbid that you would even suggest I could get cancer. Or we say, God, I, you know, my life is so good and everything is so great, I want no trials, and as soon as a trial comes, I'm going to run. Some of you, your status quo is so good. So comfortable. God forbid that you would change your schedule to go and visit the widows and those in need. Well, Peter made this mistake. He hears the word of God, and the irony is that as he is resisting what God is saying, he's putting himself in eternal damnation. If Jesus listens to Peter, what's going to happen to Peter? He'll have no Savior. Jesus had to go to Jerusalem. He must needs go to Jerusalem to die for our sins. And by resisting, who was the one that Peter was hurting? Peter. Us. So the irony of this whole story is amazing. And I want you to just catch this before I wind this thing down. Any form of rejection of God's words and direction from God Almighty is really, really serious. He says, get behind me, Satan. Oh, did Peter all of a sudden sprout two horns? Did Peter all of a sudden change into this red creature with bat-like wings? No, what Peter did is he suggested the same thing that Satan suggested in the temptation. Do God's work in a more comfortable way. I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth if you just bow down to me, Satan said, to Jesus. And so they were diverting Jesus from the the will of God. And Jesus responds and says, you're a trap. You're a trap for me. You don't delight in the things of God. Wow. Wow. To resist the teachings of Jesus is to ally with Jesus' greatest enemy. That's a scary thought. How dare us go there? especially we're we're beyond peter you are you know more than peter you have you have experienced more christianity in most of your lifetimes than peter lived by years of experience you have a greater concept of the church than what peter did at that moment and you you sit here with a far greater knowledge, you sit here with the Holy Spirit in you that Peter didn't have at that moment. You've got more Bible than Peter had at that moment. You have so much more going for you spiritually. How could any of us say, God forbid, Jesus, you tell me what to do when it comes to leading my family. God forbid, Jesus, that, that I'm going to follow you when you'd say about what I do with my finances. God forbid that I have to forgive that person that offended me. God forbid that it has to work this way, that I need to come and worship in a local church. I'd rather do it up in the woods in a tree. You know, God forbid that I would be baptized like your word says. God forbid that I, would, that I would all of a sudden lead in my family like the Father is supposed to lead spiritually. God forbid my emotions, my status quo, you're asking me to change too much. God forbid that I would start sharing the word of God with people that I, that I have at co-workers. They might get mad at me. Do not ally yourself, unintentionally, do not ally yourself or align yourself with Satan's thoughts. Beware. Be careful. How are you are going to respond? Here's what you should do. And I'm going to abbreviate what I have. You need to act like a disciple. You need to act like a true disciple acts. He says, literally when it says, get, get behind me, this is the wording, get away behind me. I want you to, and maybe maybe I'm wrong in this. I don't think he's saying, out of my sight, I don't want to talk to you, get away. I think what he's just done is reposition Peter. Physically, mentally, spiritually. Peter has pulled him aside. He has assumed a role of co-leadership with Jesus that he can rebuke him as if he is the mentor the leader not Jesus and he has pulled Jesus and Jesus turns to him and says take the position of a disciple get behind me in that culture the way that it worked man a day yeah. this fits bible the way we go around walking. This is so biblical. In Bible days, the disciple followed behind. (sighs) Good job. I'm always five steps ahead of her. And she says, I walk too fast. This is biblical. (sighs) That was dumb. (laughs) Jesus physically saying... Assume your position. Not, not just up here, but also he puts him in his? Yeah, literally, physically, spiritually. Get behind, get, you got a lot of growing to do, buddy. You got keys, but you got a lot of unlocking to do up here. And so he's saying, get to where you need to be. You know, put yourself in that spot. And then he goes on, he says, by the way, anybody else? Any of you, any person, whosoever, watch the next few verses, how it unfolds, right together. The next few verses, he says to them, hey, listen, deny yourself. If any man will come after me, by what, again, understanding culture, what does that mean? You're following behind Jesus. You are his disciple. You are literally his disciple. If any man come after me, if you're going to be my disciple... You deny yourself. What does that mean? It does not mean let's practice Lent. Let's, let's give up coconut. <laughs> Great, I'm, I'm all for it. Okay. There is no Lent for the born-again Christian. There is none. There is none. Please don't get, get sucked up with that whole concept. That is, that is liturgical church stuff that has nothing to do, no basis in Scripture. This isn't a Lent concept. The idea is what you do is you stop thinking about me. What about my comfort? What about my schedule? What about my pleasures? What about keeping everything, you know, I do any of you love change? I want my world turned upside down this week. I I want the car to break down, please. We haven't had to fix it for months. None of us would do that. And when it happens this week, because I said it, when it happens this week, you're going to send me a note and say, you cursed me. Okay. But this is what the text is saying is, Lord, it's not about everything the way I want it. I want my whatever. You know, I, want, I want the church to be making it comfortable for me. I want other people to be serving me. And Jesus is saying, no, no. First thing you have to do if you're going to be a disciple is get a mindset in your, in your head. Deny yourself. It doesn't mean, oh, let's not eat for two weeks. It doesn't mean that we are supposed to now go home and beat our bodies. It just means stop thinking so much about you. What you want. It's the idea of you saying, I'm going to pick up my cross. Please don't, don't diminish the words of Jesus by saying, oh, the cross I have to bear is going bald. <laughs> that is not what this text is about. This text is about you making a choice about things you do control. This is a text about saying, I'm going to pick up the cross. Obviously, obviously, there's a concept of personal sacrifice here. Obviously. Obviously, that Jesus was willing to suffer, we should do the same, following him. But can I suggest something even more profound and greater? The cross was God's will for Jesus. Would you grant that? That was the will of God for Jesus. That the Father sent him to die. You know, that he came to die for the sins of Israel. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. So the cross was God's will. So is it not just sacrifice for Christ and for us, but can a picture for you and me, taking up the cross, doing what God has told us we need to do. You deny yourself, And you sacrificially do what God has told you to do. Serve others, not yourself. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Taking up your cross, Luke adds, daily. Daily saying, it's not about me. It's about doing what God has assigned me to do. And something that may be hard. What has God given you that is hard? Parenting? I would say, when our kids are growing, I would have said, amen. Parenting can be difficult. Is it a blessing? Oh, absolutely. Were all the years fun and delightful? All ages. Yeah, no, yeah in the good old days we were. We have said this multiple... We have said this multiple times, that all of the phases have you... Did you fall asleep on me? (laughs) What is hard to do? Staying awake while my husband preaches. (laughs) She was wide awake. She was with it. That has only happened a few times. (laughs) Right? Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is it hard, when I, when I was, where I was going with this before I got myself in trouble, was uh, all phases, we've enjoyed all phases of the kids. But were they difficult at moments? The answer is yes. Okay, doing the hard thing of training the kids. I would rather have not. I'd rather have her do it. <laughs> is it hard to be a faithful employee? To do your very best. Is it hard to confront other believers who are going astray? Is it hard to witness? Is it hard to count it all joy? Well, some of your faces say absolutely, positively. Okay. Is it hard to forgive those who have offended you? Is it hard to be the husband, the wife you're supposed to be? Those are hard tasks. It's hard at times to be patient and loving. It's hard to be listening to your parents. That one should get a rousing amen. Is it hard at moments to be separate from the world? Absolutely. Is it hard to resist temptations? Absolutely. Is it hard to serve other people? Absolutely. Positively, all those things are hard. But that's your cross. Your cross is to sacrifice, denying yourself, sacrifice to serve to others while you keep on following Jesus. He makes it clear, he says, when it talks about serving and following the Lord, he makes this I did not come to be ministered unto, but I came to to serve to minister. It's all about you and me focusing then on what are the investments of what really counts, and there's a whole conversation there. There's a whole conversation in the message about the next couple phrases, about looking for what's down the road. But let me wrap up here. So this is a moment we can close everything and not distract everybody. Jesus Christ is warning us in this text by encountering, turn off the screen please, by encountering what Jesus, what, what this story unfolds. He's giving us a living illustration of what not to do. He is master, Lord, sovereign. He is our director, our knower of everything. He is our judge in the future. Therefore, what do we do with him? We listen to him. We follow him. We take his lead as our lead. We don't respond to him in saying, nope, nope, I don't like what you're telling me, therefore it won't happen. We become obedient to Jesus, to the best, to the fullest of our abilities on a daily basis. No to myself. Doing what I'm told to do while I'm keeping close to Jesus Christ. Is that your life? Does that depict you right now, this week? Is this the way you are living your life? Can you honestly sit here this morning and saying, before this Jesus, who I'm considering to be my Lord, my master, my God, my judge, I can honestly say, I have no God forbids between me and him. I am yielded. I am obedient. Can you say that? Or do you have to join me on this thought? I need to make some adjustments. There's some actions, some attitudes. There's some dumb things that I say in public, more so in private, and I need to address them. Maybe in private you need to address the most important thing in your life. Jesus Christ said, I have to die in Jerusalem and rise, and then be buried and rise again. He did that for you, for me, but for you. He wants you to have eternal life. So he gave his life, sacrificed it, suffered hell for you. And you in private need to make sure that you have accepted him as your one and only Savior.